Thank you, Kyle. Thank you, worship team. Really appreciated that music today. Did you? Those, those songs were all so perfectly suited for this passage, and that was by no act of mine. I didn't consult with the worship team. Maybe they looked ahead a little bit. Those are powerful truths. We, we don't just speak truth to one another in greeting on Sunday. We don't just pray truth out loud. We don't just hear truth from the pulpit. We sing truth. That's a powerful antidote to fear and anxiety and apprehensiveness and doubt. Today's message is really just going deeper into assurance. If I have not had the joy of meeting you yet, my name is Tommy. I'm the lead pastor here. It's a joy to be here. I welcome all of you who are watching from home this morning, and uh, especially those who, of you who are here. Welcome back to Grace Life. I'm grateful to be here. I'm about 60% today. I've been under the weather this week, so if I haven't shaken your hand, I think I'm past the symptom stage, uh, but don't think me rude, I'm just out of an abundance of caution. Uh, and also because of that, <clears throat> and because this is the first Sunday of the month, we celebrate communion, I've decided to break up this passage. There's so much here, it's so deep, it's so rich, it's just pregnant with encouraging, assuring truth. I wanted to break this up into uh, two messages, I actually decided that this morning. I think in the little teaser blurb we do, we said this is going to be the last message in Romans 8. You don't want to miss it, but it's not. That was a lie. <laughs> it's going to be, it was, it was an unintentional lie, today and, and then next week. So uh, keep your Bibles open to that place, and uh, since today is a communion Sunday, this is your reminder in case I forget, when I do the closing prayer and we prepare our hearts for communion, those of you who have children who are converted, who are following Jesus, who have embraced the gospel and have become a disciple, and you want them to sit with you, presumably, and, and partake in communion together, you can do that. Our teachers are always assuming uh, some parents will on first Sunday. So I always forget to announce that at the end of the sermon on communion Sunday. So I'm announcing it now ahead of time. Well, let's pray, and then we're going to dig together into this passage, okay? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is, this is the day that you have made, and we want to rejoice and be glad in it. And uh, as the psalmist says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. This is a, a high school auditorium, but today it's been transformed into your house where your people dwell, where your spirit inhabits all of us, Lord. And as our resident teacher, he's here with us today. Uh, we're all mobile temples on wheels filled with your spirit, Lord. And we've come together, we've gathered to worship you in spirit and in truth. And as Kyle mentioned in our greeting, so many of us bring into this place with us, exhaustion and fear and disappointment, Lord, and confusion and maybe anger and resentment or guilt or doubt, and we need to hear from God. We need to hear from you, Lord, and you've given us so much uh, truth to ponder, to reflect on, to, to, to engage with today. And this is just a small piece of truth, but it's, but it's not small in its impact, and I pray, Lord, that you would protect me just in my weakness as a human in my limited uh, understanding, and, and in my sickness, Lord, from just messing this passage up. It's so beautiful. It's so powerful. I have been helped just the time that I've spent this week in this passage. I pray I'd be able to communicate that, Lord, to the people that are here today and watching from home. Would you anoint me, and would you open our hearts and our minds, Lord, to see and experience and to celebrate and to believe this truth, Lord. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well... There are some animals out there that I admire. They're tough. They're tough as nails. There's, there's hardly anything uh, you can do to get these animals down. One of them is my wife's favorite. It's the honey badger. 
I don't know how many of you know about a honey badger. And I don't even know where those things, where their natural uh, habitat is. I've never seen one around here, but if you see one, don't mess with it, okay? They'll mess you up. Honey badgers are bad to the bone. Not they're impervious to danger. They're either ignorant or they just don't care. And you, it's, it's even a meme now. Honey badger don't care, you know? Honey badger's going to do his thing. Uh, this is a honey badger walking back from an, an attack with a porcupine. He don't care. He's got quivers all in his coat. He doesn't care. It doesn't bother him. And... Uh, as I think about this passage and what it says, I'm not actually reminded of the honey badger because they're kind of mean, you know? I don't want to compare Christians to honey badgers, even though there's a dynamic of, of, there's a dynamic of how we handle trouble that's there. Instead, I'm going to go with the red velvet ant. How many people in here know about the red velvet ant? Very good. I love it when this happens. See, I'm from Arkansas, and those things aren't even really native to Arkansas, but when I was about eight years old, I found one of these. They're actually not ants. They're wasps. This is the female, and they don't have wings, so they just look like a really pretty ant. They're about three-quarters of an inch long, and I found that thing, and it was so pretty, and I was so intrigued by it, and I messed with it for like an hour, and I'm, this is your pastor confessing to you now. I was just a country boy, and when you find a tough animal like that, you don't really think much of them. I thought, man, I, I want, how do I kill this thing, you know? I, I know it's terrible. I confess it before God. He's changed my heart. I wouldn't kill one now if I saw it, but that was B.C. That was before Christ. So for, for like an hour, I kid you not, I did everything you could possibly do to an insect to kill it. And this thing, I buried it alive. It, it crawled out. I threw rocks on it, sticks on it. I threw it up in the air. I called my cat over to chew on it. This thing is like a survivor. It's a survivor. And so recently I was thinking about comparisons. I love analogies. They help me understand the Word of God better. I thought, uh, what is it about red velvet ants, man, that they're... That they're just survivors. So I did, I did a little research. The red velvet ant has been called the indestructible insect, the Iron Man of the insect world, and even the cow killer. Did you know they call them cow killers in Texas? Their, their sting ranks in pain. Now, I didn't know this as an eight-year-old. Man, doesn't God take pity on our ignorance? I mean, I picked it up. It crawled on me and everything. It never stung me. Their pain ranks just under a bullet ant, which if you know anything about a bullet ant, you don't want to get stung by one of these things. Their stinger's enormous. So God spared me the pain, but they're called cow killers, okay? I don't know if they've actually killed a cow. But scientists conducted a series of experiments because they were baffled by how impervious this insect was to, to attacks uh, and, and how averse it was to it. They, they called this insect unconquerable, indomitable, undefeatable. Um, the defense of, of red velvet ants includes this, bright coloration, duh, we see that, uh, repellent stridulation squeak noises, and I remember that. It was squeaking when I was messing with it, trying to scare me away. It didn't work. <clears throat> a chemical alarm signal, like a smell, a pheromone maybe, a hard exoskeleton. Turns out that's the kicker, man. These things have a harder exoskeleton. It's 11 times tougher than that of a bee. Now, I know bee, you're like, well, a bee's pretty weak. I know. But still, 11 times more is how tough this one's exoskeleton is. A powerful venomous sting and rapid escape behavior. Uh, it makes them nearly impervious to predators. So, a series of studies was conducted by scientists because they were baffled at how tough these things were. 59 red velvet ants were presented to potential predators. I promise this, this connects with the Bible, okay? Potential predators, ants, spiders, lizards, birds, toads, and gerbils. This just fascinates me. 
Only two were killed. Out of the 59, only two ants were killed, one by a tarantula and another by a gerbil. In most cases, the velvet ants were either ignored from the start or were attacked, released, and eventually left unharmed <laughs> and then left alone. One brave toad didn't get it, though. He attacked, but he, <laughs> but he appeared to be in distress following the event and actually appeared dead. His breathing stopped, his mouth gaped open, and he fell over for about 26 minutes. Uh, nevertheless, the toad did survive, and when presented with a second red velvet ant, after seven days, avoidance behavior was exhibited. So you get the impression these things are bad to the bone. And I think, honestly, Christians, if we think about it, we're kind of just like them. I mean, this ant, it's not mean like the badger. It doesn't provoke attacks. It kind of just minds its own business until it's messed with. And then it's got all kinds of defense mechanisms that you had no clue about. This thing's bad. It's, it's, its abdomen is round and slick. So if another animal tries to bite it or grab it, it's like trying to stab a slick waxed, waxed metal ball. It just goes right over it. So Christians are, are kind of like this. And, and as I think of what this passage really teaches us about who we are in Christ and the implications for that, I can think of one word, and that word is actually invincible. Invincible is the word. Here it is. Now, that's a word maybe you throw around, but it's a powerful word. Here's what it means. Incapable of being conquered, overcome, or subdued. How does that strike you? Like the Word of God today is going to tell you that you are actually, as a Christian, as someone who belongs to Jesus Christ, who's been blood-bought, adopted, forgiven, rescued, justified, you're invincible, you're unconquerable, you're indomitable, you're undefeatable. There's nothing, 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 absolutely, no conceivable power that can change the status that you have in Christ and that God will ultimately finish and fulfill his plan for you that we've been reading about in Romans 8. You're invincible. Isn't that incredible? I think it's incredible. I think that you believe it's incredible, but I think we have, a, we have a problem when it comes to this kind of thing. We allow circumstances to so dominate our thinking and just topple our assurance. We're so easily convinced otherwise. There's so many things going around outside of us, like the song saying, my foes are many and they rise against me, right? They're all around us and they rise up and we forget this so quickly what God says. That's why I believe Romans 8 is not the only place in the Bible you're going to hear these promises of what God is saying about you. You're going to find them everywhere. See, to me, that's proof that the Bible was written by God who knows us and understands us. He says the same thing in so many different ways by so many variety of metaphors and through so many different authors because God knows we are a forgetful people. We forget things. That's why we have this. You know, we're going to do this at the end of the service. Do you know why? Because Jesus said this. As often as you do this, do this what? In remembrance. Why do we need a reminder, man? God's already told us everything we need to know. Why do we need a reminder? Because we're fallen and we're broken and we're forgetful. We're forgetful. You will go out today after this sermon. I hope you soar. I hope you float out of here. I really do. I hope you float out of here and you soar home. And it'll take you about 10 minutes before you forget this sermon. And, and look, I'm not accusing you. We're going to learn about that too. Nobody can accuse you if Christ has justified you. I'm saying I'm with you. I need this. In fact, a lot of you have told me that you have been trying to memorize Romans chapter 8 since we started. It seems like a year ago, going through this chapter. But here's the problem. This is the greatest part of Romans 8. And, and some people, when they're memorizing a chapter, they get tired and leave it off. Man, you should have started with this section. 
This is the best. I mean, you see, Romans chapter 8, it starts with, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So it starts with no condemnation, which is the greatest news in the world and the very beginning of the gospel, that pronouncement over your life. But this chapter ends with no separation. Not only are you not condemned, that would be good. It's like, hey, look, you're not condemned. God's forgiven you. Now, he picks you up and he dusts you off and he says, now get back out there, tiger, and live a righteous life, right? Well, what would happen? We'd fall again and then we'd say, well, I've done it again. Oops, clean me up again. I guess I lost God's love. I guess I lost my salvation. Forgive me again. Forgive me again. Forgive me again. Know Romans 8 says there's no separation. Nothing can actually separate you from God's love. In the final grand scheme of things, nothing can. It's not possible. There's no conceivable power out there who's greater than the one who has justified you. That's what's so beautiful about this passage. So, we are invincible. We're inconquerable or unconquerable. We're like the red velvet ant, but we're much more powerful than the red velvet ant. You'll have to forgive my silly illustration. I'm trying to find any way to engage with you, okay? So, this is what the Apostle Paul says, one of the first things. We, we left off on verse 30 last time. <clears throat> and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And that's what we call the golden chain of redemption. And Paul, look, he could have stopped right there. That's like an exclamation point at the end of the most beautiful, inspired poetry in the world. It's like a slam dunk. That's, the, that's a spike in the end zone, right? But he didn't, man. He, he wrote nine more verses. Because God knows us. We need more than that. It's like, no, but wait, there's even more. It gets even better. It's far better than your mind could ever conceive. It's like presents under the Christmas tree on Sunday morning, and you thought you opened the last one, and your dad's like, hey, go in the other room, and there's another Christmas tree in there with a whole other set of presents that are even bigger and better and more expensive than the other ones. So the last part of Romans chapter 8 is the best part of it. What shall we say to these things? And this is what I love. Let me try to find this uh, 831. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, here, here is like, this is a rhetorical question. In fact, Paul's going to ask, depending on how you count them, about six or seven questions. I'm going I'm to rank them as just four questions. He's telling us we are so secure, we are so in the grip of God, it's so settled, our justification, our glorification, it's a done deal. Nothing can overturn it. Nothing can ultimately threaten it. Nothing will ever cause God to change his mind about you because everything he did, he did was with his eyes wide open. But Paul knows we're going to doubt that. So he's going to ask us these, these set of rhetorical questions that we're going to answer. That's going to be our, our outline. But, but what I want to show you is there's something else. This is a preliminary point. What Paul is, is doing in this passage, he's actually inviting you and me as Christians to really argue ourselves into assurance. So often we argue ourselves into doubt, don't we? And skepticism and suspicion and being cynical. It's like, man, I don't know. God, I don't feel God's love anymore. I don't know. I don't know about this eternal security thing. Maybe God changed his mind. Uh, Paul invites us to think more deeply about the finished work of Jesus on our behalf and what it means. I love this. This is like... Martin Lloyd-Jones called this section logic on fire. This is inspired apostolic logic, but you can do it too. And I'm not saying you're going to add to scripture, but this is a great example of what do you do when you doubt? You start asking yourself questions like, well, hang on a minute. I know that God is for me. And if God is for me, who ultimately in the grand scheme of things can ever be against me? Do you, do you understand? What, do you see what he's doing? He's teaching you how to argue with yourself. 
It's like, hey, God loves me, so who cares if my neighbor's angry at me for not taking the garbage out? Or who cares, <clears throat> and, and really the answer to that is God cares. He's, he's for you, but he still cares about all these issues we have in our life. Paul's just teaching us, he's giving us a platform and a pattern of what to do when trouble arises, when doubts assail us, when, when the enemy, when the devil, whose name means the accuser, Diabolos, when he accuses us, when his fiery darts are aimed at us, what do we do? We start arguing with ourselves like Paul does. And this is how he does it. That's verse 31. Here is verse 32. Can you see that okay? It's little. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And he goes on, he says this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution? Do you hear Paul? He's arguing. Or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written for my sake. We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep for the slaughter. This is Psalm 44, I think he's, he's quoting here. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then the last part of that. For I am sure, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else, and all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what Paul is doing. He's teaching us to argue ourselves back into assurance out of doubt. And in doing this, not only is he giving us just powerful content, but a powerful pattern to model our lives over. So the next time that you get assaulted by doubt, do what Paul did, argue with yourself with an open Bible and an open heart and say, wait a minute, this is ridiculous. I'm worried, I'm scared, I'm afraid. What have I got to be worried about if I'm a child of God? You know, he's going to show us how to do this. So, by the way, these, these questions, there's a way in Greek to ask a question when the answer is implied. So a better way, we'll go, we'll go back to, to, the, to the first part of this here. Whenever, whenever Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? It's an if-then, like a question. Probably a better translation would, would be since. Since God is for us. Or seeing God is for us. Who can be against us? So think about it that way. It's not like it's an open, open, if God is for us, well, is God for us? He's saying, no, God is for you. And since God is for you, who can possibly be against you? What does it mean that God is for you? Have you ever thought about that? What does that mean? This is what the NIV study Bible, there's a note in the NIV study Bible that I love. God is for us, tirelessly working on our behalf, and showering his love upon us. I just wonder how many people, in the sound of my voice at home and in this room, really believe that. God is for you, which means he is tirelessly working on your behalf. Do you believe that right now, this very moment? That God is for you, which means he is tirelessly working on your behalf. It would almost be, as one theologian said, as if it's just you and God are the only two beings in the whole universe, and his attention is completely, 100% focused on you. That's an amazing thought to ponder, isn't it? 
Maybe you need that like I, like I need that. God is tirelessly working on our behalf. There's a place in Psalm 56, it's one of my favorite passages, where it starts out this way, talking about arguing. King David, he says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for man tramples on me. You ever feel like that? Just being trampled on, Lord, by people, by circumstances. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. And he goes on to complain, but then down to verse 9 he says this, but this I know, that God is for me. Don't you love that? He starts out the psalm, help, I'm getting trampled. There are oppressors everywhere. People are relentlessly attacking me all day long. And then verse 9 he says, hang on a minute, but I know this. God is for me. And then verse 11 he says, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? You see the comparison? That's what happens. It's like, hey, there's a lot of people against me, but if God is for me, who in the grand scheme of things can ultimately be against me? That's when you turn into the honey badger, I guess. I don't care. <laughs> Martin Luther once said, if I knew that I had sinned against every single human being in the world and none of them forgave me, but I knew that Christ forgave me, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. I have the forgiveness of the only one who matters. And then he flipped that. He said, on the other hand, if everyone in the, in the world loved me and were my best friend... And adored me, but I had not God's affection, my life would be a waste. Who cares? I'd rather die. God is for us. I don't have a tattoo, and I'm not, certainly not against them. If I ever get one, though, I think that'd be it, man. Number one, it'd be pretty cheap, right? God is for me. I like that. That's a good one. God is for us. God is for us. I, I was talking to a pastor on the phone the other day. I was just kind of venting with him. He's, he's, he's kind of my pastor, Larry Kirk and from Christ Community. And he was telling me a story once about, uh, he was, it was really early on in his ministry, uh, you know, Christ Community, he planted 35 years ago and they're thriving and he's on, the, he's on the edge of retirement now. He's got a succession plan, but he said, man, the first few years, it had been 12 years, we were still renting a high school. Sound familiar? He said, I was the only one on staff he said, in our, our children's department, we're getting worn out with setup and teardown every single week. People were complaining. And he said, man, I just, he said, I, a member of our church had a, like a retreat place in North Carolina. There was a lake there, and I went out there, and I was just crying out to God. And I said, God, show me that you love me, please. Just one of those, give me a sign, you know, demonstrate to me your love. And he said, an old Christian hymn flashed into his mind, uh, and I think I have it up here. Yeah, and it says this. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? And Larry was telling me, he said, it was as if it was a mild and a gentle and a loving rebuke. God was telling me, why do you need a demonstration? What more could I say to you than I've already said to you? Open up your Bible to Romans 8 if you need a reminder. <laughs> What more could I possibly do besides this pond? What do you want, a dragonfly to land on your head? You want a butterfly to kiss you on the mouth? You know, it's like God says, what else can I possibly do to demonstrate my love for you? As to what I did, my actions through sending my son, and what I've said about it in my word. So I just thought that was interesting. How firm a foundation. What more can he say to you than he has already said? So this is an invitation for you and I. Uh, 
What do we say to these things? I, I was reading some commentaries on this because I'm curious. What things exactly is Paul talking about? I always have understood that to mean, and I applied it this way last time I preached on this, is the previous passage when he says, you know, God foreknew us, he predestined us, he called us, he justified us, and he will glorify us. I thought, what shall we say to these things? And it definitely includes that. That's the most, you know, that's the closest thing location-wise. But most people believe it goes all the way back throughout all of Romans. Paul is bringing his argument to an apex before he deals with some objections in chapter 9. And he's saying, what should we say to all these things? So I just began to think like, man, yeah, we, you know, we've, gotten, we've gotten a lot of truth in this book so far, haven't we? Chapter 8 has been chock full of the most amazing and powerful promises. So check this out. Check out these nuggets. What shall we say to these things? We're forgiven. We're reconciled. We're adopted. We're justified. We're, not, we're united, union with Christ. We're filled with the Spirit, full sonship. We're dead to sin. We're alive to God in Christ. We're not under the law, but we're under grace. We're in the Spirit. We're heirs with Christ. We're sons of God. Boom! What else do we need, right? What do we say to these things? So often we yawn, I think. I think we yawn. Because we don't think about them enough. I think God wants us to think about these things until the glory of our condition and position in Christ and what he's done on our behalf just overwhelms us. That's what assurance really is. So here's the first question. And we're not going to finish all this today, okay? I've already told you that. We're invincible. What, what four things has Paul asked us about here that, that prove this to us? Well, here's the first one. Who could be against me? That's question number one. Question number two. How could God withhold what I need? Number three, who could accuse and condemn me? And number four, what could overturn God's love for me? So those are the four questions that I'm summarizing them, some I'm putting together, to show us that we're actually invincible. Here's the first one. Who could be against me? Now remember, the Apostle Paul is writing to people, real people like you and I, it's a pastor's letter, it's an epistle, who were living in an environment that was not sympathetic at all to their worldview or, or, or had no sympathy for the Christian worldview. In fact, diametrically opposed to it, hostilities. Many of these people were met with the prospect of paying the ultimate price for their devotion to Jesus, which would be death, persecution, being led to a coliseum, sewn up in wild animal skins, and lions unleashed on them. Sheep for the slaughter, right? So, he's asking, who can be against us? Who can be against us? And I think it, it, if he just asked it that way, if Paul just said, hey, is anybody, is anybody against you? What, what, what could you answer? Does anybody in here today face any opposition? I'm just curious. Anybody feel opposition? Not even from unseen, invisible, demonic forces. Just out there, just circumstances. You feel any opposition? You feel oppressed? Maybe even in your own heart? I was watching a docu-series on criminology and there was an expert, and he said, you know, mostly when there's a murder that takes place, if you have access to the victim's iPhone, smartphone, or address book, you're going to find the killer within that, within that book, because it's normally always somebody that knows them and that cares about them. And I thought, man, that's so, that's so interesting. So often when we say, hey, do you feel any opposition? Some of you may feel it very close to home. In fact, in your home, maybe you feel marital strife, or maybe with your kids, or maybe with your parents, or maybe with your siblings. 
Or maybe you're not married, you're single, and you feel that opposition, opposition of loneliness, or you feel conflict with a friend, you feel tension there. You don't have to look very far to see opposition. Maybe COVID, Satan, the world, our flesh, from a hurricane maybe, there's opposition. Who can be against us? You know, there's another storm coming this week. Somebody told me on the way in we can expect over 12-foot waves. Who can be against us, right? The weather can be against you. The HOA can be against you, right? The bank, Wendy's like, stop. (laughs) But no, seriously, miss your mortgage payment, and you'll find out what I mean. You don't think the bank can be against you? The government can be against you. The wrong person's in office, can't they? He was writing this when Nero... The Christian killer was sitting in office in Rome. <clears throat> and maybe the biggest one is you can be against you. Is that right? How many of have you feel like your greatest enemy is sitting in your seat, looking you in the mirror every morning? Who can be against you? Viruses and germs. Me this week, man, did God remind me of that? We are living in a broken body and a fallen world. One little germ can take you out. I guess when you're 47... A common cold can, like, wipe you out for six days, man. It sure did me. Our own bodies can turn against us. Autoimmune, type 1 diabetes, Crohn's disease, all kinds of stuff can take you out. But Paul is not asking who can be against us. What he's doing is comparing it. He's saying if God is for you, by comparison, who can ever possibly rise up in opposition against you successfully? And the answer is nobody can. Nobody can. And we need to be reminded of that. And we need to rehearse that in our minds. I do every single day. Some of you face all kinds of opposition. An antagonistic boss, maybe an abusive relationship you're in, a codependent friend, an inner struggle, an addiction, chronic health problems, difficult kids or parents or friends. We have opposition. We suffer opposition, but in comparison, when God is for us, that's the one thing that we'll never face opposition with is God, because we're in Christ. We have a favorable disposition. We have the smile of God is upon us. Now, that's an amazing thought. Of all the people and forces and demons that can be against you and principalities and powers and circumstances and governments and elected officials, God is for you. So you can stand under that pronouncement, under that declaration, and say, man, none of the rest of that stuff is going to undo me. It's going to be painful, but you know what? Even with Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that in Hebrew, it's the darkest valley of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Because you're for me. God's for you. God's with you. How close? He's filled you with his spirit. Man, that's a tremendous truth. That's a tremendous truth. He's never saying... We won't face opposition. He's saying if an all-powerful God has purposed all of our life for good, what do we have to fear? What do we have to lose? That's the answer. I got nothing to fear. I got nothing to lose. I tell myself that almost every single day. I'm serious. I can work myself up in a frenzy of being afraid and apprehensive. Maybe a tough meeting I had. Maybe somebody wants to meet with me. And I still have deep insecurities. Maybe somebody didn't like my sermon. Maybe somebody didn't like my leadership style. What are they going to say? Why didn't they tell me more in that text? We need to talk. Come on. Hey, don't ever send me a text like that. (laughs) Say, hey, we need to talk about how amazing you are. No, I'm just kidding. 
Why do I, hey, listen, seriously, I'm 47 years old and I study the Bible for a living. Why can a simple text like that rattle me? Because I'm not going deep enough into this truth, that's why. If God is for me, who can be against me? I should be able to walk into a meeting of 10 people ready to murder me and say, hey, what you got? God's for me, man. He's my advocate. And I ain't perfect. I'm not the best leader in the world. But the only perfect pastor was murdered, so I'm in good standing, right? <laughs> oh, goodness. That was question number one. one. One pastor I read said this, the way to remove fear from your life is not to isolate yourself from all dangers because that's impossible, but to believe the promises of God who is bigger and better than all the dangers you'll ever face. It's good. Point number two, this is in verse 32 now, okay? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And I love this because this is an argument. This is what they call an argument from greater to lesser. It's like, hey, God is so for you. He is so in your corner and on your side. How do you know that? Because he gave you the ultimate, he gave the ultimate price to secure that. What did he give you? He gave you the thing is the most precious to him. He gave you his son. Any of you in here have children, I doubt very seriously whether you would agree to have your son slaughtered so that your enemies could be forgiven. Think about that. That is how for you God is. That's how deeply in your corner, in your corner that he is. And this is a Hebrew argument from greater to lesser. It's like, look, if he gave you the greatest thing, here, here's a way to think about it. God is so deeply invested in you by giving you the greatest thing. He's not going to go skimpy on you with the other things you need, like food and shelter and relationships and wisdom and courage and faith and hope. <clears throat> we need those things too, don't we? God's not going to go skimpy on those things. Think about it like this. I read where the average wedding in 2021 cost, anybody want to guess? What's that? 28000 not bad. $28,000. Any of you have daughters, <clears throat> you better start saving. $28,000 is the average wedding in 2021. Now, consider this. Here's an analogy, okay? Say you have a daughter and... She's been dating the same guy since high school, and you have invested in discipling this guy to make sure he's the one, right? You've read the Bible with him. You've studied the Bible with him. You've taken him fishing. You've gotten to know him as best you can. You're invested. And then finally, he comes to you and he says, look, I'd like to ask for your daughter's hand in marriage. He, he does it the, the right way, right? The old-fashioned way. And you say, okay, sure. Yeah, of course. I bless this union. And he's like, and can you pay for the wedding? <laughs> let's, let's be old-fashioned all the way, right? You go, of course, man, of course. I'd do anything for you guys. So, uh, you pay for the wedding venue, you pay for the cake, you pay for the photographer, you pay for the flowers, you pay for the dress. What am I leaving out here? There's a bunch of other stuff, depending on how much you want to spend. So imagine this, all that's taken care of, and then, and then your daughter says, hey, Dad, we need to get a marriage license, and it's $86. In the state of Florida, it is $86. There's a $35 discount if you get premarital counseling from me. So there's some incentive for you. True story. But your, your daughter says, Dad, 86 bucks, please, for the, uh, for the marriage license. And you say, uh-uh, I ain't doing it. It's too much. I'm sick of this. I'm over it. I'm done with it. How silly would that be? How crazy would that be? How insane would that be? No, you've already invested the 28 grand and the 10 years discipling the young man. Are you going to go skimpy on the $86 wedding license? No, you're not, right? 
It's just like me with my son. Here's another illustration for those of you that don't get the wedding illustration, okay? So my son played Pop Warner football for the first time this year. I had a great experience. It cost 250 bucks to get him registered, to get his helmet, his shoulder pads, which apparently was a rental because I had to give them back. <clears throat> and uh, then I had to get his special socks. Uh, some of you were gracious and let us use your cleats. Had to buy a special mouthpiece and a gel implanted chin. Anyway, it's crazy. So after doing all that, uh, how about if my son said, Dad, our, game's on, our first game's on Saturday and it's 15 minutes away at, at this field. And I said, no, I ain't giving you a ride. I'm sick of this. No, I'm going to give him a ride. Why? Because I'm already invested. Do you know how heavily God has invested in you? He gave you the most precious possession. I was thinking about Genesis 22 when Abraham was asked by God to take his son. It's almost just the way this is written, man. The voice of God came to Abraham and he said, take your son, take your only son, take your only son whom you love, take him to the mountain that I tell you and sacrifice him for me. How crazy is that, man? That it was a test to see what was in Abraham's heart. How hard would that be to do that? But if you did that, how invested would you be? God's invested. He's given you the greatest thing. He's not going to renege now on the other stuff. My old Sunday school teacher in California said this. He said, he thinks often of John chapter 14, where Jesus is telling his disciples, I go and prepare a place for you, and if I did that, I'm going to come back. And he would make the point, he's like, look, Jesus has invested 2,000 years in getting your crib ready for you, right? He's not, he's not about to back out of that now, man. You've already got like a name tag on your front door. By the way, it's not castles, it's dwelling places. There are many dwelling places in, in my father's habitat, right? Many homes for you. I mean, you've got a name tag there already. It's a done deal. God's invested. You're his. Here's the third question, okay? Who could accuse and condemn me? And we're going to probably finish up with this one. Who could accuse and condemn me? Look at verses 33 and 34 here. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who, inter who, excuse me, who indeed is interceding for us. So he's saying, hey, who, who can accuse you? And what's the answer to that question? If you're just thinking about it, is, does anyone accuse you? Do you ever face an accusation? Absolutely you do. Absolutely, all the time. Guys, we're living in 2022. This is the cancelest culture we've ever been in in our life. You better take note of every text, every post, every tweet that you've ever sent. Because if in the future you want to run for president or something like that, they're going to go digging up your history, man, and going to cancel you out. No, but honestly, seriously, I think we're, we're the greatest accusers, aren't we? We talk to ourselves the most, and we listen to our voice the most. So if he would have just said, hey, who can accuse you? Who can condemn you? We know the answer to that. But I'll go further than that. You know, Satan, by nature, is an accuser. He's a liar. He hates us. And you see his role in Scripture. It's to accuse. There's a place in the Bible I want to show you to illustrate this. It's in the Old Testament. It's in Zechariah chapter 3. And there's a picture here. There's, there's eight night visions that Zechariah is shown by the Lord. And this is one of the most powerful. And he says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. And I believe this is a pre-incarnate 
appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. So here's Joshua who represents Israel or he represents the, the people of God. You can say the church, okay? He is standing before the Lord. And check this out. And Satan is standing at his right hand to accuse him. Man, that makes me angry just even seeing that picture, knowing the reality and the truth of that. That's what Satan always wants to do, is to accuse you. To accuse you, to slander you, to lie to you, to whisper doubt and misgivings in your ear, and so often we listen. Satan is standing at his right hand to accuse him, and the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. Don't you love that? The Lord rebuke you, Satan. In other words... Shut up. That's what he's saying. You shut your mouth. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by, and the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua. Don't you love that? I mean, this is us. We're filthy. We got filthy garments on. We're stained. We're broken. We're flawed. We trespass. We, tra <laughs> we, trust. we do that too sometimes. We trespass transgress the commandments of the Lord. We still sin, don't we? And the enemy points his finger and accuses us. Even in the presence of God, he's standing at our right hand accusing us. But the angel of the Lord rebukes him and says, they're invincible. I've clothed them. They're mine now. They're cleansed. They're justified. Listen, God justified you. I love what J.I. Packer says. God's never going to change his mind about you because he justified you with his eyes wide open. He knows the absolute worst things that are ever going to be on your record or that already are on your record. He knows them all. You're never going to surprise God or shock him. He justified you with 100% knowledge of your entire life. And nothing's ever going to overturn that or, or change his mind. I love that picture. And I love what Romans chapter 16 says. One day the God of peace is going to crush Satan underneath his feet. And you know what? I got to be honest, man, the eight-year-old kid in me, I want to be there and hear what it sounds like when Satan gets squashed, the juices that squirt out of him, you know, when, when, <laughs> when the God of peace squashes Satan under his feet, I want to be there and see that and say, man, you, <laughs> whatever happened to all those accusations, buddy, they evaporated, didn't they? That's what this is about. Your identity will be determined by what the most important person in your life thinks about you. And listen. That's not you, that's not your parent, that's not a kid, that's not a friend, a coach, a pastor, or anybody else. It's God. The accusations that Satan hurls against you, they shouldn't stick. I saw a story the other day, maybe you heard about it too. Vincent Van Gogh painted this in 1888, it was called The Sunflowers. And it's over $40 million piece of art hanging in a London gallery. And two protesters went in there and threw a can of Heinz tomato soup on the exhibit. $40 million painting, and they threw tomato soup on it. And then they glued their hands to the wall. They were protesting the use of oil, I guess, 
painters use oil, and I think they were a little confused about the kind of oil they use. Anyway, that's another story for another day. But people that were there gasp. They couldn't believe it. It's ruined. $40 million painting ruined, except the gallery came out with a statement a few days later, and it said, there was only minor damage that was done to the wooden frame because there is a tiny, almost imperceptible to the human eye, pane of thin glass, veneer glass, that is over every piece of artwork in that exhibit. And what they threw on it wouldn't stick. So no harm done. It was in, the painting is invincible, and the frame will have to be cleaned and replaced. And I just thought, you know, I heard Herschel York, he used that, <clears throat> excuse me, illustration. And I thought, you know what, we're just like that, aren't we? We get tomato sauce, accusations, condemnations hurled at us, brought up by the devil, conjured up in the middle of the night by our own heart, our own memory. But we're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus has justified us. Listen, guys, we've been acquitted by the highest court in the world. Somebody gave my wife a book, and it was, uh, it was just a weird book, man. It was called If I Did It. Have you heard of this book? O.J. Simpson wrote this book, okay? Now, it's crazy because the book is basically a confession to murdering his wife. It's, it's the most insane thing I've ever read, and I'm, and I'm asking her, how in the world can he write this confession and he still be free? And I don't know, lots of stuff has happened, though. Is he even still alive? I don't even know. Anyway, and, and Sarah was telling me in the book, it says, there is a piece of legislation, uh, I think in the, I wrote it down somewhere, uh, the double jeopardy clause in the Fifth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution prohibits anyone from being prosecuted twice for substantially the same crime. In other words, once you've been tried and accused and acquitted, you're safe, man. It's like when you were a kid playing tag and you're like, I'm on base, man. I'm safe. You can't touch me. So it wouldn't have mattered what O.J., even if he confessed to the crime, he's already been Try This is a horrible illustration, guys. I know it is. But just go with me here, okay? No matter, no matter what it is that, that you feel tried for or accused of or condemned in, it doesn't matter. You've already been acquitted. I would even go further than that. Somebody has already stood in your place and taken the punishment for your crime. There ain't no way you're ever going to be condemned or accused of it again. Even if you're the one that accuses and condemns yourself, it ain't going to stick. You've been covered. You've been declared blameless. You belong to Jesus. He's more for you than you could ever possibly realize. That's the good news of this passage. And that's why we're about to celebrate, to celebrate this. What is, what is this? Remind me again. This is an ordinance. Thank you. I'm telling you, man, I'm not all there today. Thank you for your patience. We're about to celebrate this ordinance to remind us how deeply God's love the, the, the fathoms of the depths of God's love for us. We are, you are more secure than you can ever possibly realize. So when you start to doubt your salvation, maybe God's going to change his mind about me. Maybe I'm not really in Christ. Maybe I'm not doing enough. Friends, take yourself to Romans 8 and start arguing yourself into assurance. You are his forever. You belong to him. There's nothing, nothing, nothing in this created universe, visible or invisible, that could ever separate you from his love. And we'll talk about that last question next time. I'm going to pray, and servers, you, you prepare to come down here with me, and parents, if you want to get your children who are believers in Christ, they can join you down here um, in your seat for communion. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for sustaining me today. <clears throat> I pray that uh, 
you would help us to just fix our minds and our hearts on the, the powerful and beautiful truths that we're reading here and understanding here, Lord. Give our minds comprehension to know, Lord, you do not want us to question your love for us. Just like a good parent would always want their children to know that they are in the family, nothing they could ever do or say or think could ever possibly change that. What security, Lord? How that would help galvanize us for suffering. How that would help us leverage our life, Lord, to do hard things in the name of Jesus. If we don't have security, if we don't have assurance, Lord, if we don't have that joy, we're going to be a miserable Christian. It is possible to be invincible, but to be paranoid. We don't want that, God. It's possible to be wealthy, but to live like a miser. It's possible to be healthy and be a hypochondriac. We don't want any of those realities, Lord. Help us to know who we are in Christ, to know whose we are in Christ, and to live accordingly, to be filled with hope and courage, and to leverage our life, Lord, to live on mission for you obediently in this world, to be filled with your spirit, Lord, to know that that we belong to you forever. Thank you for that assurance. Thank you for that truth. Thank you, Lord, that you have settled the issue forever. We pray this in Jesus' name, and be with us now as we celebrate communion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.